Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Today we want to continue looking at the modern role that Buddhism has taken on in the self-help movement, a movement that has been growing with the increasing influence of neoliberalism in our society and influence that as I will show, runs directly counter to Buddhist values. As you might glean from last week's talk, I will view the trend of Buddhism as self-help quite critically. To understand the critique, we have to take the word self in self-help quite seriously and contrast the Buddhist teaching of non-self with what self has come to mean in the modern context. This is a valuable exercise in itself for modern Buddhists, whether or not they agree with my critique, since we carry this modern sense of self through our upbringing, yet are impelled to practice non-self through our commitment to the Buddha way, and therefore must deal with this contrast in any case. For the next weeks, I want to intersperse two stories, then show how they intersect. The first story is that of the Buddha's deconstruction of the self, that is, of the doctrine of non-self, as taught in the early Buddhist texts, and of non-becoming. Humans persist in their ignorance in constructing a self, then grasping that self tightly in every culture, but it gets us into trouble every time. That is why the Buddha taught non-self to dispel the ignorance and to loosen the grip with which we hold that self. The second story is the modern construction of the self. My concern later will be that Buddhism, as self-help, actually reinforces the modern construction of the self rather than dispelling and releasing it. One story will describe the Buddhist deconstruction of the self in progressively greater detail. The other story will describe the historic evolution of the construction of the self in Western thought and culture. Each is an important topic on its own. The different views of what self is, one deconstructed and one constructed, will intersect in modern times at self-help. Let's start with an overview of the Buddha's deconstruction of the self. We, in our ignorance, construct the self on two levels, ontologically and psychologically. Ontologically, we presume that there is a relatively fixed and substantial thing in the world, which we call the self, and that stands in relation to other things. Let's call it the thing-self. So I exist, I have parts, particularly a body and mind. I do things, I own things, I think, therefore I am. My existence is actually a kind of metaphysical 
presumption. But we might not notice this because it seems like just common sense. In fact, it's very hard to see this first level of self otherwise. The second level is easier to see but hard to unravel. Psychologically, we further develop an individual and complex sense of self or personal identity or simply ego, a fleshing out of who we think we are as an individual in contrast to everyone else. I'm a sporty, carefree sort of guy, a cut above the rest but humble about it, with a sparkling sense of humor and money in the bank. I have kids and a beautiful wife, a car that everyone envies, a bowling trophy and a stamp collection. Oh, and an Oscar. In becoming, we stake out our realm of personal self-interest and form views about how the world works, views in which me plays the starring role in the middle of a web of conditionality. Craving oversees this personal footprint as a sense of self to be guarded and preserved at all costs. The ego is imprinted on the broader world as we understand it, which is actually grown and shaped in terms of personal interest. Let's call this the ego self. The bigger the ego self, the greater our personal craving, suffering, and harm to others as our self-centeredness undermines our virtue. We know something is wrong, but in our ignorance, we don't know what. Most of the traditional religions tend to challenge the greater manifestations of the ego self, such that maturely religious people tend strongly toward humility. To establish an ego self, we appropriate things we experience as being me or mine. That is, we identify ourselves with such assets. Four kinds of features are distinguished for appropriation. The things we desire, our views about how the world works, our presumably efficacious behaviors, and views about who we are in relation to our world. Shaping views and behavior is an apparent need for a coherent and unified sense of self as a perceptive needy agent. In the end, it is our footprint that defines who we think we are. What most of us fail to notice is that our footprint makes us miserable, a larger footprint even more miserable. There is craving connected with every asset and we are terrified of losing or failing to attain what is at stake for us. Craving floods our personal footprint and is, as we know, the origin of suffering. The odd thing is that all the while we imagine a larger personal footprint will make us more secure. For the Buddha, bhikkhus, just as even a trifling amount of feces is foul-smelling, so too I do not praise even a trifling amount of becoming, even for a mere finger snap. Within the links of dependent co-arising where we find explanations of almost everything in the Dharma, 
The thing self is established at the link of contact. The ego self is established at the link of becoming. We might even say that the first six of the 12 links, beginning with ignorance and culminating in contact, are primarily concerned with how we come to presume that a self exists. The last six of the 12 links, with becoming as the fourth, are concerned with the ego self, how it arises through feeling, craving, and appropriation, and then how it is sustained through the cycle of life and death. The link of becoming in which the ego self takes form is right at the heart of human suffering, a kind of cesspool of suffering. The Buddha tells us, Now this holy life is lived in order to abandon becoming. The two levels of self are conditionally related. That is, the thing-self gives rise to ego-self, since contact gives rise to becoming, through the intermediary links of feeling, craving, and appropriation. This means that if we were to completely dispel the ignorance that there is a thing called self, we would have nothing to flesh out in becoming. We will have abandoned becoming and the ego self would lose its support. We would be awakened. In Buddhist practice, we gradually develop doubt about the existence of a thing self alongside loosening the hold of what we have included in our personal footprint to define the ego self. Deconstructing the thing self is an advanced practice and the primary focus of satipatthana or insight meditation. Loosening the ego self is accomplished largely through ethical practices and through the development of virtue in opposition to self-centeredness. This is a first pass over the deconstruction of the self in Buddhism, which, for typical devout Buddhists, is a work in progress. We will continue to talk about the deconstruction of the self in the coming weeks. My past talks have covered most of this. Let me somewhat parenthetically introduce a third level of self as a matter of house cleaning. This is the concept self. Even if we have completely deconstructed the thing self and relinquished the ego self, we will find the concept of self handy as we negotiate what is left of the world. The concept self gives us something to point at even if we do not believe in the substantial existence of what we are pointing at. Just as we might point to the shade of a tree as a place where we won't get sunburned, or our reflection in a mirror as a way to see what others see, even though neither shade nor reflection is a substantial thing. Let's turn to the self in the modern context. Although we're looking at the, for the most part, pre-Buddhist West, the Buddhist framework we have been talking about will aid our analysis. We're interested in historical, religious, 
and cultural trends that either encourage or discourage the growth of the ego self. For instance, it's been pointed out that the Protestant Reformation in Europe in the 16th century encouraged a priesthood of all believers who could commune with God without intercession of the traditional priests. This elevated the ego self to the center of spirituality along with a very distant God and quickly acquired creativity and rationality as additional attributes of the ego self. It also gave us a strong suspicion about religious institutions. Each of these consequences of the Protestant Reformation has affected how Buddhism is also understood in modernity. We can also look at the degree of suffering that arises with the ego self and how that suffering is addressed particularly in religious traditions. For instance, salvation religions generally offer comfort and a degree of tolerance for the human condition experienced in this life through the promise of a better life to come. For instance, with the return of Christ, consumer capitalism encouraged the growth of the ego self in ways we will explore and as a result, anxiety, depression, and many psychological and social ills. But with the promise of future salvation, when we have finally acquired enough stuff. And finally, we can look at another aspect of the ego self, which historically is probably rare in the East individualism, the tendency to ignore or even disparage social influences or responsibilities in our life. French political philosopher de Coqueville, who visited the United States in the 1830s, wrote about Americans, Each of them living apart is a stranger to the fate of the rest. His children and his private friends constitute to him the whole of mankind. That is American individualism, still familiar today and very important in the coming weeks. The American philosopher David Loy, in his book, A Buddhist History of the West, applies a Buddhist understanding of Western cultural history through the concept of lack. The idea is that just as we are terrified by death, the thought that we might not exist substantially in the future, we are even more terrified by the notion that we might not even exist right now. We presume that our self is an actual thing, but then we have a nagging and terrifying doubt that we are nothing. Accordingly, we try to ground the self through various means to convince ourselves that we are real. This traces the movement from the thing-self to the ego-self, in which we try to ground ourselves, much as I have laid out. As Loy puts it, the sense of self is shadowed by a sense of lack, and the ego-self is the axis of a web spun to hide the void that is the absence of a thing-self. 
The impulse to ground ourselves as a defense against non-existence is not found in the Buddhist teachings as far as I know, but the explanation is certainly compelling, and Lloyd's perspective itself is based on later Mahayana tradition. In any case, the Buddha located the impulse for becoming and developing an ego self more simply as craving for becoming, or in terms of hunger for nutriment. But lack is a good term in any case because it is more directly expressive of the dire human condition that shadows the ego self. We all, except for the few awakened among us, suffer profoundly from a sense of lack. Moreover, Loy takes a bold step cutting through all the equivocation about religious versus secular. Due to its ungroundedness, lack is a spiritual problem, the spiritual problem, and religion is whatever addresses or offers a resolution to that problem, successfully or more often not. Alongside Buddhism and Christianity, patriotism, communism, and consumer capitalism are thereby religions, for they at least purport to address our lack. This allows Lloyd to trace continuities of many cultural trends in the West as they pass seamlessly from the so-called religious realm into the so-called secular realm. Many values pass unchanged. It also seems to accord with Paul Tillich's description of religion as the ultimate concern. For instance, for Loy, the Augustiner doctrine of original sin is a reification of lack with its own explanations, and it thus became the central issue to be addressed in resolving our lack in much of Christian tradition. In modern consumer capitalism, lack, Loy suggests, is reified as not yet enough. As religious traditions began to disintegrate in the 16th and 17th centuries, along with their answers to the problem of lack, Loy points to an increase in anxiety and fear in association with unappeased lack. Psychologically, anxiety and fear produce aggression. This was exactly the period in which Europe began conquering the rest of the world in a remarkably aggressive manner when they weren't fighting among themselves. Next week, we will continue discussing the self in Buddhist terms on the one hand and the history of Western and modern self on the other. <laughs> 